Hi friends, this is Yolando. Kate and I are away again this week, so instead of our regular podcast, we are sharing one of Kate's sermons preached at The Grove. We hope you enjoy it, and thanks for listening to our podcast. In this moment, in these uh, months, this month, we are thinking about what it means to be the Grove, and we are breaking down our mission statement. Last week, we talked about what it means to us when we say inviting all, and who is all. Um, Next week, we're going to talk about what serving looks like, and we have a really amazing set of guest preachers, um, Adrian and Manuel Freet, who God used to birth the Hope Vibes ministry. If you want to know what it looks like to serve, come next week. I know we pride ourselves on our serving, and we're not slouches about that around here, but we have more to learn, and they have much to teach us. But today we're talking about the last part of our mission statement. We say that our mission here, our purpose, inviting all to serve and come alive in Christ. Hear these words of scripture. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, and he was sitting at Jesus' feet. He was dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured, and then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave because they were overcome with fear. So he got in the boat and left. And the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Pray with me, church. God, we aren't here seeking one more sermon or one more lesson or one more piece of knowledge to be proud of. God, we come here because we believe that your word is what really nourishes us, because we believe that Jesus is the word. 
So God, in this moment of contemplation, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would empty us of ourselves and fill us with you. We ask that you would change us and conform us to your glory and renew our minds so that we might know and delight in doing your will. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So there's a man named Oliver Beer, and he is a contemporary music composer. And he makes uh, not only the music, but he makes the instruments that play the notes. And currently he has made an orchestra that plays 24 hours a day in one room of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And we're gonna play you a little clip of what that looks and sounds like. like that, but it does look like that. Um, what Oliver Beer realized is that any vessel, be it a vase or a cup or a sculpture or a clay pot, any object can become a musical instrument as long as it's empty. You already knew this because you've played around with this truth, right? You've held up a seashell to your ear and heard a sound, or you've blown over the top of a soda bottle or licked your finger and then moved it around the edge of a wine glass. You already know the truth that any empty object holds a frequency, makes a sound. That's just physics. But Oliver Beer figured that out and he got really interested. And so he went to the museum and he walked around dropping microphones into all of the precious artifacts. And then he would record the sound and amplify the frequency. And not all, but many of them made the same notes that come out when we play the keys of the piano or strum a guitar. And so he took those objects that made those notes and he mic'd them and he amplified them into a keyboard. And then when he pushed those black and white keys, what came out were the sounds of those empty vessels. So he made an orchestra out of those objects. And if you go into that room, that's what you see and what you hear is kind of this otherworldly sound that might be like the background music of a sci-fi movie. The oldest object in his collection is a 7,000-year-old terracotta clay pot, and it was fired in a kiln in what is now Iran. And if you drop a microphone into that pot, it plays the note B. Now this pot was created to be useful. It was created to be full of things. It was made to hold water or to store food. But when it is empty, it sings the note B. And it's been singing that note for 7,000 years without stopping. And if you go back 7,000 years from now, 
it will still be making that sound. It will still be singing its note. The psalmists tell us that the heavens are telling the glory of God, that the skies proclaim his praise. The psalmist says, let all the trees of the forest sing for the joy of the Lord. And what we learn is that even pots and glasses and vases made by us are part of the symphony of creation praising God. If only we think to listen. Now, when I heard about this orchestra this week, at first I was just encouraged. My heart was uplifting to think of the symphony of creation and praise that was going on even when we didn't know it or intend it or think to hear it. I was encouraged to think that not only everyone, but everything and anything is made to be part of the music of God that's the glory of creation. I kind of smiled and took a deep breath and a sip of coffee and thought this would give me some extra zing to accomplish the day's tasks of good and necessary work. And then I was convicted by the realization that all of these objects only played the note that they were given in their creation. They only played that note. They only sang when they were empty. And I don't know about you, but I work very, very hard to never be empty. I work very, very hard to fill every chunk of my life with people and ideas and songs and prayers and holy worries. I make it my business to never, ever be empty. How about you? Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee to go to Gerasene, and here he is again, leaving the place where he belongs, the place that's full of people like him, the holy place, the good place. Here he is again, going out of his way to go into the deep territory that others avoid. This story shows up here in the Gospel of Luke, and also in Matthew, and also in Mark, and it's really unclear, was he going to Gerasenes or Gerardines? These are different places, but here's what they have in common. They are far from his hometown of Nazareth. They are far from Jerusalem, and they are full of Gentiles and Romans, pigs and tombs. The prophet Isaiah, in the 65th chapter, condemns those who sit inside tombs, those who spend the night in secret places, and those who eat the flesh of swine. So Jesus, as he's going to this town where the major industry is pig farming, who comes to meet him as soon as he steps off the boat? Who rushes up to him but a filthy, naked, demon-possessed tomb dweller? Everything they ever told you about that place you weren't supposed to go, it was true. And Jesus sees him and immediately commands the demons inside of him to release him. And they don't seem to go out quite right away because Jesus has a little conversation with them. They, the demons, they say, what do you want with me? And can you notice how they are claiming to be the authentic identity of the man? What do you want with me? And then look what they call Jesus, son of God. Once again, the demons know exactly what the chief priests and scribes and experts don't. 
They make the claim, Jesus, you're the son of God. And the disciples aren't ready to make that claim yet. Let us see again in this moment, church, that knowing and claiming that Jesus is the son of God does not make you a follower of Jesus. Knowing and believing that Jesus is the way doesn't change us. Walking the way of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, even if it's inconsistent and imperfect and poorly, that is what makes us disciples. Not knowing, but doing. But the demons make their profession of faith in Jesus, and they beg to be allowed to continue on opposing the God's will and using other people for their own pleasure. You don't know anybody like that, right? You're the son of God. They say, what are you doing here? Leave me alone. But Jesus will not because he is the son of God. He has power over these demons. In Matthew, the demons protest, it's not time yet. And Jesus says, hey, wherever I am is the eternal now of God. And Jesus doesn't need to be in a temple in Jerusalem. His power is sufficient, even in a graveyard in the farthest places away. And the demons say, okay, well, we have one request. Don't throw us into the sea. And in the Gospel of Mark, the man who is being possessed by the demons says, please don't send them too far away. Because sometimes that's what we think. We want our demons to have a little less power, but we don't want to get rid of them altogether. Because sometimes our demons are working for us just a little bit. So the demons say, put us in the pit. And so Jesus does. And like I told the kids, the pigs immediately run into the sea. They self-destruct. Why? Because demons pull people away from God and God's will for their lives. And that away is another word for sin. And the wages of sin are death. Sin is self-destructed. Sin is literally trying to tell us to be and do what we are not created to be and do. And if we're trying to be what we aren't, then we cannot be what we are. And we see this so clearly in the pigs, but it is merely invisible in ourselves. So the demons are gone and the man is restored to himself. And the next time we see him, he is clean and clothed and sitting at Jesus' feet and ready to follow. And he is emptied of his demons. He is cleaned of everything that was destroying him from within, of everything that was driving him away from God and community and out of the God-given life that he deserved. He was emptied. And out of that God-given emptiness, what did he begin to do? He began to proclaim the glory of God. That's what Jesus sent him off to do. Go to your hometown and tell the one story you have about what God has done in your life. I want to be very clear about the connection I'm making here. This week, we're focusing on that last part of our mission statement. And whatever comes last is always the most important thing. So here in this place, we invite all, and we are here in this place to serve all, and those are faithful, holy, good activities, but the most important reason that we are here is to come alive in Christ. And what does that even mean? Well, I think it means the story of this demon-possessed man who was far from the Lord and all the other holy places and who was full of things that were destroying him, so full that that was his only identity, and he had been rejected by decent, God-fearing people who were just trying to get by 
he was naked and afraid and obsessed with death. And Jesus crossed over a watery abyss and went through a literal storm to come to him. And Jesus emptied him of everything that sought to possess him and define him and destroy him. Jesus emptied him out and in that emptying restored him to his true self. And by the power of God, he no longer was what he used to be. Once he was empty, he became his true self. And in that emptiness, his life began to sing the glory of God. Do you get the connection I'm trying to make here? Church, if we hope to... It's okay that you didn't say yes, because I've got more to say, so that's okay. <laughs> See, there are some of you in the pews who know that if you want the preacher to stop, you need to say amen like you get it, but that's okay. I like to talk. Church, if we hope to come alive in Christ, we have to know this story. Because you and me, we are by the grace of Jesus Christ, we are the saints, and we are the people of God, and we are the body of Christ. But here's the truth. We've got demons. Amen. Now that's a powerful word, and it's a very charged idea, and it's not the kind of thing that good, decent, orderly Presbyterians ever, ever talk about. Demons, some of us don't believe in them. Others of us do, and so are very offended to be told by their pastor that they have them. If you ask 20 people what a demon is, you will get 34,000 different definitions. But whether people agree that demons are real or not, almost everybody thinks that a demon is that thing that was happening in The Exorcist, right? A clearly supernatural spirit that makes people levitate off their beds and their heads spin around and speak in a deep, spooky voice and breathe sulfur. And if that's what you think a demon is, if that's the only thing that you'll put the label demon on, well, the enemy has you where he wants you. Amen. So try this. You can put the label demon on any belief or behavior that pulls you away from God and God's will for your life. A demon is anything that fills up your empty spaces so that there is no room in you for the Holy Spirit. There is no space for the Spirit to teach you what you don't already know. There is no time for you to listen to the Spirit reveal to you what God is doing. And there is no emptiness in you to be filled by the treasure that is the gospel. We were made, church, to be empty. And if you were here last week and you heard the story of Ananias, God says to Ananias, I want you to go to the house of that murderer Saul. He's blind. I want you to heal him. And Ananias is like, God, why? He's killing all your people. And what does God say to Ananias is God's future for Saul. He says, he is my vessel to take the gospel to the nations and to the kings and to the Jews. This man is my chosen vessel, the empty space that I will fill with my glory. And what did Jesus do to the demon-possessed man? He emptied him out to make room in his spirit so that he could be filled once again with God and recovered to himself. When we think coming alive in Christ, I need us to think about emptiness and letting go of all that fills us up and satisfies us, all the things we're certain of, and letting God alone be our place of abundance and our wisdom and our enough. When we think of coming alive in Christ, I need us to think of emptying ourselves. 
hurts and all of our petty goodness and trusting that God is good and God will keep his promises. Yes. See, so often right. we approach coming alive in Christ at all. If we think about it at all, then we think about it as one more holy project, a very sacred and important one. And usually, since we naturally assume that we already are everything that God created us to be, we think of coming alive in Christ as something that other people need to get real serious about. You know, those outsiders, those dirty, naked tomb dwellers. And so if we're super serious about being holy people, as all the very best scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees are, then we take on the responsibility of making other people holy. We design programs for them. We script prayers for them to say. We monitor their behavior. We purchase holy carrots and sticks. We get serious because eternity is at stake about fixing people for Jesus. And we do whatever it takes because in this case, of course, the end justifies the means. And when it doesn't work, when we can't fix people in a way that we think looks like being alive in Christ, when it looks to us like they are putting the community at risk, then we shake the dust of them off our feet and move on to greener pastures and more compliant other people. And then the demons who are in us tell us that we are God for other people and they cheer and multiply and take up even more space. Yes. Most often when we mount a Come Alive in Christ campaign, we mount it on other people, but sometimes we do it on ourselves. A spiritual self-help campaign, we get serious about getting holy and we reward ourselves when we discern that we've had a good day and we punish or hate ourselves when we decide that we've failed. And eventually, we either declare ourselves complete and we walk on without Jesus because we've become our own savior, or... We grow disgusted with our cycle of failures and we give up and walk away empty, which is the better alternative because God can work with emptiness. But what I want us to see, church, is that all of these paths of doing the work of coming alive in Christ, all of these paths fill us up and lead us far from God, whether we are attempting to make other people alive in Christ or whether we are seriously trying to resurrect ourselves in Jesus, it is all and fury signifying not nothing, but lots of things that fill us too full for the work that the Holy Spirit would do in us. And often the work that the Holy Spirit would do in us is not the work that we would choose for ourselves, because newsflash, we're not God, Amen. and we don't know what's best for ourselves. I want us to see that coming alive in Christ is absolutely the essential thing for this community. And that this thing that must happen here is the one thing that we cannot make happen. The only power that can make us come alive in Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does not work for us. So if we're serious about coming alive in Christ, then we're going to have to be serious about becoming radically, vulnerably dependent on God showing up and being God. And that is not comfortable. And that's about us doing less and less and us not filling ourselves up so much. That's about us emptying ourselves out of all our plans and all our wisdom and all our busyness and trusting that in that empty space, God will play the note that he created 
created us to sound and that what is in us won't be of us. Church, I want us to come alive in Christ and recognize that so much of what we're full of, even things that the world celebrates and admire, can be labeled demons because they separate us from God and satisfy us outside of him. I want us to see that the work of mature and faithful people is about emptying ourselves out and saying, have your way, Lord. Put in me something more than ourselves. It's that song we sang this morning, set a fire in my soul that I can't contain and I can't control. Let us be a John the Baptist church a church that sincerely prays, let me be less and less so that God can be more and more here. Church, will you join me in prayer? Holy and loving God, we are your people and this is your church. And if you don't show up, then nothing matters. So God, we are letting go of control and we are running to meet you in the boat at the shores of our lives and we are saying to you, whatever that is in us that is not of you, God, cast it down and send it away. Make room in us so that we can be your chosen vessels, so that we can be the jars of clay that carry the treasure that is the gospel, that what we have to offer the world and one another is not ourselves, but ourselves filled with you. God, let us rejoice in your power, in your glory, and in your goodness that fills emptiness up to abundance with your healing love. And all God's people sing together, hallelujah. Let us rise and love.